Welcome everyone to Check Yourself, a health and wellness podcast aimed at helping you live your best life. This podcast is brought to you by the Community Health Education Center at Salem Health Hospital and the Salem Health Foundation. I'm Leah Burkhardt, a community health educator and your host. Today I'm speaking with Donna Thomas. She works in cardiology and is an RN, an incredibly knowledgeable one at that. And in our conversation, we cover a myriad of topics surrounding the challenge of navigating heart failure. Included in this thread is what heart failure is, you know, how that relates to you know, high blood pressure, like when you're getting your blood pressure taken, strategies that might help prevent heart failure, as well as strategies one can employ once one is diagnosed. Uh, we talk about the importance of sleep and healthy nutrition, for example, and that's just to name a few. I'm really excited for all of you to get a chance to explore this with us. I know I was absolutely delighted by Donna's wide and deep understanding of the topic, as well as her passion for helping people. A quick note here about the sound quality. Due to COVID, we've had to get a bit creative as it relates to the ways in which we educate, and this podcast is one element or one arm of that effort. Uh, In an effort to keep people safe, even as we record, when folks have come down in person, we still socially distance and encourage, well, we follow suit with the guidelines promoting masks, and the challenge there is we occasionally might hear some muffling that is a result of that mask or if through zoom sometimes there are some oddball sounds that can creep in so i thank you well in advance for your patience with us as we continue to upgrade and improve the quality of our sound and uh, i have no doubt though that the quality of the content that donna brings to this conversation will surpass any frustration you might have with our sound glitches so without further ado then let's go ahead and get started Yeah, I know, like, butts around a little. Yeah, get it so it's not going to clip down there too much. Oh, Oh, is it wrapped around the table? Okay. (laughs) All right. So now what I'll have you do is get very... I'm here with Donna Thomas. Hi, Donna. Hi, Leah. Should I call... Thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. You're the one sharing your valuable time. I so appreciate it. Thank you. And should I call you Dr. Thomas? No. I'm a nurse. Okay. Um, I'm a registered nurse, have been for about 22 years now, and my role here at Salem Health is a heart failure nurse navigator, so I go out and teach patients and their family members about heart failure and how they can take care of themselves at home to, in order to live better and longer with a good quality of life. Mm, we're so lucky to have you. We need you. Well, thank you. We could use a few more of me. Yes. (laughs) And when you say nurse navigator, can you tell me a little bit about what that entails? Like, you know, for someone who's never, I just assume a nurse is a nurse, but what's the difference? 
Well, because I studied uh, more extra on heart failure and how the heart is working and what happens when it doesn't pump as well as it should. So I am uh, got the certification of CHFN, which is Certified Nurse, Heart Failure Nurse, excuse me, Certified Heart Failure Nurse, and that was um, a pretty intense test, mm-hmm. a nice thick book to use to study. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually started out as just a mid-surge nurse and went into... Um, Oh, I've done so many different things. ICU, bone marrow transplant, orthosurgery, um, and then I got into the hearts and loved the hearts, and I did that as a travel nurse. I did travel nursing for about six years, and then I did um, seasonal nursing down in the southwest at one particular hospital for six years. Mm Mm-hmm. And then decided I wanted to work as a regular staff member after all those years of doing that and ended up here. And what is a trap? I mean, with COVID, as we're recording this, it's still rampant. And I hear quite a bit about travel nurses. And I've got to be honest, I don't quite know what that is other than that they travel to a myriad of facilities but what what is the difference between a travel nurse and just a a member of a facility is is it just the travel nurse staff nurse thank Um, you the staff nurse like what I am now we work for the hospital Uh and the hospital tells us you know this is where you're going to work these are your job duties and such Whereas as a travel nurse, you work for an an agency, and they determine what your pay rate is going to be, and they find a contract for you. Most contracts are for 13 weeks, and you go to that particular hospital, you work the 13 weeks, and then you move on to a different contract, different hospital. Or you can even re-sign at that hospital for another 13 weeks. Huh. I can completely understand why there would be an appeal for that and why there would come a point where one might say, I just, I just want to stay here. I, I'm, I'm late tired. <laughs> so. Well, and it's better job security. Because... Mm. As a travel nurse, um, you usually get paid a little bit more and they pay for your housing. Mm-hmm. But as a travel nurse, you don't get any kind of sick time or vacation time. So when your contract is over, if you move on, you have a week or two of moving, you don't get paid. You don't work, you don't get paid. Ah, uh, so it's just a notch below contract worker. Yes. That makes sense. Yes. Huh. And what, I know you said you fell in love with the heart. Yes. What is it about the heart that you fell in love with? Seems inappropriate. You know, in terms of metaphors, <laughs> it seems appropriate. Yeah, the heart is so complex, and there's so many things that can affect it, um, so many things that people can do in their lifestyle in order to make their heart stronger and better, and you sure can't live without one. (laughs) 
And I don't know, it just, it was probably seeing some of my first heart patients that it just, I don't know, it just stuck with me and rang the bell. Oh, that's lovely. So I, I know we're here, we were, you know, t- heart failure is something that's come up. This is heart month. And yep. so it seems a, a natural topic that will come up. What exactly is heart failure? Because when I think heart failure, I think, well, that it has failed as in there is no more heart left to be beating. So that's what it conjures up in my head. And I know others who say something similar. So what is heart failure? I have a lot of patients that think, it's a death sentence, and they're dying very soon. And heart failure is not the best term for the the uh, the disease. Heart failure is a very slow, progressive disease with no cure. Mm. All we can do is treat the symptoms, but it's a very slow process. And I've had patients that live with it for twenty, thirty years. And it all depends on how well the patient takes care of themselves and follow the recommendations as to how long they will live and how well they will live with it. But with heart failure, it's chronic, um, and it's where the heart is too weak to either pump the blood out of the heart or it's gotten very thick and stiff and it can't open up enough to allow enough room for blood to fill. Mm. Either way, they end up with less blood getting out to their body. And so all this extra blood backs up. I see. First, it backs up into their lungs, and that creates a lot of pressure in their lungs on the blood vessels. So to relieve that pressure, water leaks out of the blood. And that's how people get fluid in their lungs. I see. And that fluid is an irritant because it's not supposed to be there. So that can make them cough. Yeah. It's also thick. So it doesn't let as much oxygen get through it to get onto the red blood cells. Uh huh. So therefore, they're not getting enough blood or oxygen out to their entire body, to every organ, every cell, even their brain. And that's what can make them start feeling really tired, have no energy, can make them short of breath, might make them a little dizzy or lightheaded sometimes, or maybe not think as clearly as normal. Eventually that blood backs up enough that it goes back into the right side of the heart and then back into the body. And that's when they may end up feeling bloated, their clothes fit more snug, they might be hungry, they sit down to eat, and they only eat a couple of bites or so, and they're full. Wow. Yeah. And maybe we can get to this a little bit later, too. Is that part of why the potassium pill is often given is to help with that fluid retention. That is my understanding, but I don't actually know if those are related. No, potassium is a little bit different. Um, You need the potassium for muscles to contract. Ah. And the heart's a muscle. Mm -hmm. You have a very narrow window for your normal potassium levels. So... 
most people, we like to keep them between four and five when they're heart patients. Mm-hmm. Normal, though, is 3.5 to 5.1. You don't get a whole lot of potassium normally from the food. There's a lot of potassium in different foods, but most people don't consume enough to really have an overabundance of potassium. Mm -hmm. So we don't worry about that normally unless they're heart failure and they're on a diuretic, Mm -hmm. such as Lasix. Ah. The Lasix is helping um, to prevent your kidneys from reabsorbing sodium. Uh-huh. So that sodium goes out in their urine, and where sodium goes, water follows. And so that's why they go to the bathroom a lot more, and that's how we get rid of some of that excess fluid that they have building up in their lungs, their heart, their legs. But the problem, too, is that sometimes potassium likes to trail along with that sodium and water. Uh-huh. And that's when they get the low potassium. Uh-huh. And with a low potassium, then they're at risk of their heart stopping. Because the heart is a muscle. Yeah. And so that's why I see. But we also want to be careful that they don't take too much potassium and get a high potassium level. Uh-huh. Because if the potassium level goes too high, then they're at risk of developing really dangerous rhythms. Interesting. So like a, uh, when you say dangerous rhythms, is it sort of a random staccato beat? So it's, it's not as regular? or like what, no. is it, what, what we're are- worried about is them developing rhythms that we call V-tac, V-fib. Uh-huh. Those are um, the bottom chambers of ventricles. That's where the V comes from. Tac, uh, the V-tac is very, very fast, um, but it's got almost um, a rhythm to it. Whereas V-fib is very abnormal, very fast again. And those two rhythms can lead to basically the heart stopping. I see. V-tac and V-fib are the rhythms that when somebody has a heart attack, we shock them for that. Okay. That makes sense. We don't want that. No, uh, thanks, but no. (laughs) Not if I can avoid it. Yeah, no, you don't want those. (laughs) Well, so this actually brings me to this. I was told once, and I also may be misunderstanding this, so maybe I was told something slightly different and like a game of telephone. I'm just misremembering. But as I understand it, there is a relationship between sodium and potassium such that the ratio is almost as important, if not more so, than just the actual quantities. But am I misunderstanding that? Basically, sodium and potassium, they work opposite of each other. Uh So while one's inside a cell, the other's on the outside of the cell, and then they'll cross. Okay. So if sodium's inside, potassium's outside, they'll cross, so potassium's inside, sodium's outside, Mm -hmm. and that's how the muscles contract. Okay. Okay. Um, We don't, at least I don't follow like any kind of ratio or anything. I don't know if the doctors that are higher uh, educated Mm -hmm. do or not. I've never heard them talk about it. But we have certain levels of sodium as well as the potassium, magnesium, and such that we watch 
that can affect the heart. I see. So, because so many people I know, if they're given any kind of diagnosis regarding uh, a heart condition of any sort, they are told, all right, well, you got to lower your, your sodium, get the salt out. But it's, it sounds like it's more complicated than that. It's not just about reducing the sodium. It's also about making sure that the potassium is at an appropriate level, as well as other electrolytes, but primarily yes. those two. Yes, yes. Interesting. Um, sometimes if the heart goes into um, like what we call AFib with RVR, basically it's the top chambers that are in this fibrillation rhythm, mm-hmm. and the RVR part is a rapid ventricular response so the bottom chambers are trying to respond, and they're going super fast, but they're not really connected with the atriums and the top chambers. So we will test the blood, and sometimes that is caused by a low magnesium level. Ah. And so all the electrolytes will have these effects on the heart. Um, the main ones we really pay attention to, though, are the sodium and the potassium for the heart itself. And with a heart failure, we put you on a diuretic. The doctors will monitor the potassium levels fairly close for a while until the patient is good and stabilized. Then we can stop, um, or not stop, but slow down the monitoring of it. Mm-hmm. Then they'll get stable, and we don't worry too much about it unless other things pop up. Okay. So when I'm thinking about other things popping up, one thing that's coming to my mind is high blood pressure. Yeah. So high blood pressure. How I is wish that? we all had a perfect <laughs> blood pressure. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> like, how... So what is the relationship between blood pressure and heart failure? Like, it... I mean, I understand that they are related, and I can kind of get a sense, but what's the sort of, um, what's the domino effect here? What's causing what? Okay, well, with blood pressure, what we're actually doing is measuring the pressure that's inside the arteries. Mm -hmm. So the top number is called your systolic blood pressure, and that one is measuring the pressure that the blood exerts on the artery walls. During the heartbeat. Uh-huh. Diastolic is the bottom number of your heart, of your blood pressure. And that's measuring the pressure that the blood is exerting on the arterial walls while the heart is at rest. Okay. okay. So, basically, if you have high blood pressure, which happens... As you start getting older, because your blood vessels start to get a little bit harder, not as flexible, but if if those blood vessels do that and the blood pressure goes up, that means your heart has to work really hard to pump that blood through your vessels. Okay. And anytime you make that heart pump really hard, you're overworking it. Uh-huh. And it's a muscle. So when you work out a muscle, it naturally gets bigger. In the heart muscle, it's going to get thicker and stiffer. Oh. So that's going to lead to heart failure, to heart disease. 
Um, all that can also lead to some plaque buildup in the arteries. That can lead to some blockages. Or if a piece of the plaque breaks off, then you're looking at a clot that's going through that can end up in your kidneys, in your lungs, in your brain. can be devastating. Wow. So in my brain, because I'm in the health education, health coaching arena. So when I hear things like working out a muscle and, oh, the muscle's getting bigger, my brain immediately goes to that equals good for all instances. And I'm also, my brain is doing this thing where it's thinking, oh, so to work the heart out, that would include things like running. But then that would make me think that the more running I do or cardio, respiratory, any kind of cardio exercise, that that would make my heart stiffer. Is that true? Or is this, are these two different things that you're talking about? It's true and it's not. Okay. It all depends on what else is going on in your body. Mm-hmm. Do you have high blood pressure? Um, does heart disease run in the family? Do you have kidney disease? Because the lungs, the heart, and the kidneys are all intertwined together. Uh-huh. One will affect the heart or the other. Um, you have something go wrong with the kidneys. That's going to make stuff back up into the heart. If it backs up into the heart, it's going to back up into the lungs. Uh-huh. So it's all intertwined very much so. So somebody that's normally healthy, they can go for a run or a jog or something. That's going to be great. It's going to help strengthen their heart. But somebody that's got a weak heart, that's not as good. Um, we want them to be active. We want them to exercise because that will help strengthen the heart. But if they start struggling to breathe or are really huffing and puffing a lot, they need to stop and rest because then that puts a strain on the heart. That makes sense. And so we always um, recommend that people talk with their doctors before they take up any kind of exercise to get their approval and um, recommendations of what kind of exercise they should do. Interesting. That makes, now I'm understanding the whole warning label in front of every exercise video I've ever seen in my life. Yep. I mean, it made sense before that, but I just thought it was due to litigious concerns. Now it makes more sense. So if I'm someone who has a weaker heart and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to make myself all better again. And I get too overzealous with training. I can actually do myself more damage. Yes. So it has to be this sweet spot, like just enough. Moderation. Yeah. That's the key to everything. That word again. Damn yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> the image that it's conjuring for me is of someone who's trying to gently increase the flexibility of a rubber band. So it's almost like if I take a rubber band and I pull really hard, really fast, it breaks. Yeah. But if I just continuously, gently pull, 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 and I do that for a long period of time, before I know it, this rubber band went from a radius of you know, two inches to now three or four. Mm-hmm. So it's similar with exercise in the heart. It's like it, you wanted a sweet spot. It's challenging, but not so challenging that it's stretching that little rubber band to the brink. Yeah. That's a great analogy to use even for the different uh, types of heart failure because ah. there's two different main types of heart failure, which is your systolic and diastolic. Huh. And with systolic, 
that's when that left ventricle has gotten weak. So it's not pumping as well as we want it to. So it's not pushing enough blood out of the heart. Uh-huh. Too much stays behind. And then with every heartbeat, you have more blood returning to the heart. But there's not enough room for it. Okay. So that muscle around the left ventricle will start to very slowly thin and stretch out, just like that rubber band. Okay. And it does that in order to try and supply enough room for the extra blood coming in. Uh-huh. But it can't keep up. And that's uh-huh. when it starts backing up. But you get that enlarged heart with an ejection fraction that is low. Now, the ejection fraction is a percentage that we use. All the blood that's in that left ventricle to begin with, right before the heart squeezes, Uh the percentage of blood that gets pushed out of the heart is what we call an ejection fraction, Uh EF. And anyone who is 40 or less percent has what we call systolic heart failure. Okay. There's a new term for it, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF. Oh, HEFREF. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like it, HEFREF. <laughs> and then there's diastolic heart failure, or HEFPEF, uh-huh. heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Mm-hmm. And that's anyone who has an EF that is normal to high. So anything over 50, 50 or above, is considered diastolic. Uh And that's when the muscle gets working too hard and gets thick and stiff. And then there's not enough room Uh for the blood to fill. So systolic is a pumping problem, and diastolic is a filling problem. Okay. But they both end up with basically the same consequences where the blood backs up i see so in when i'm getting my blood pressure taken mm-hmm. you know this is there's systolic that's the top one and then the diastolic is the bottom one yes i've been told that that systolic one is the one that's the most responsive like in the short term so as an example if i were to get my blood pressure taken and i had I ran up the stairs to get here just in time because I was late for my appointment. You sat me down and it's like, okay, go ahead and take my blood pressure. Um, it might be a little bit high at first. Absolutely. And, but the diastolic wouldn't necessarily respond as quickly. Is that right? Or do they both, are they both as sensitive to those kinds of changes? I, I really don't know for sure okay. on all of that. I know you're going to have an elevated blood pressure normally uh-huh. if you or running like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they both go up at the same degree of level. That'd be a really good question to look at. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'll be honest. The reason I'm asking is I'm, uh, and again, you totally fine, because this is something where if I've done screening events and I'm taking blood pressure, you know, it's very low bar to entry. It's, it's very uninvasive. And someone might have a slightly, most of the time when I see high blood pressure, it's most often that top one that is high or it's both. But occasionally the top one is fine and the bottom one is high. So that diastolic one. 
And invariably I'll get the, well, what is it that would make that go down? Like, why would this be a thing? And what would make that one specifically go down? To which my answer is often, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I can tell you that in general, it's probably wise to exercise your body and eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Like, <laughs> Those are good answers. Um, <laughs> it's also to eat um, a little bit lower sodium a lot of times. Right. Um, know what your numbers are. What's your cholesterol? Uh huh. That's a big one. Know your uh, blood pressure, what's normal for you. Know that it's going to be a little elevated if you're stressed. Uh-huh. If you're running. Uh-huh. <laughs> know what your normal heart rate is, the range of it. Uh-huh. You know, they do vary anyway. And both arms, if you check your blood pressure on both arms, they should be close to the same numbers. Uh-huh. Um, if they're not, then we need to start looking to see what's going on yeah because if is there anything that uh, is commonly an issue if someone has different scores on each arm is it sort of like a go-to scenario of you very likely have a clot in this one that's not here in the other or is that a just curious now with a clot you're going to probably know because um the affected limb is going to be probably swollen. It's going to probably be painful, maybe a little red. Yeah, so usually you kind of have an idea of that. Um, they, the doctors will usually start doing like an ultrasound of the limb to make sure there isn't anything, a venous duplex um, which is like an ultrasound of the vessels to make sure there aren't any really deep clots that were missing. Gotcha. Um, it could be heart-related. It could be lung-related. You just, I leave that up to the doctors. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I just report the findings. <laughs> You're like, I'm the one who gives the personal touch. And yeah. then when it comes to the technical details of that sort, it's like, all right, doc, you're in. I'm tagging yep. you in. Yep. That's, That's their job yep. description. <laughs> <laughs> very reasonable line to draw. It's like very reasonable boundary. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm thinking too, you know, when I'm thinking about blood pressure and, uh, and heart disease in general, one of the things that frequently comes up as a go-to strategy to take a load off of the heart and reduce the, the strain is to lose weight. Absolutely. Okay. Think about it. Um, if you're overweight, uh-huh. you probably have, um, probably have high cholesterol. Uh-huh. You probably have high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And all of that is going to affect how hard your heart has to work. I see. And so one of the best things people can do is start to lose a little bit of weight. Even just 10 pounds or so can make a difference. I see. So you want to start eating healthy. Watch how much sodium you eat, how much fat you consume. Try to get the good fats uh-huh. instead of the bad fats. Okay. So, so here's a conundrum for you. Imagining someone coming in and they are technically overweight. So they get on the scale and you give them their BMI and it's, you know, they go the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know my doctor's always saying, but then you check their other biometrics. And their cholesterol practically deserves a plaque 
for its stellar quality and their blood pressure is fine and they're all the things are good and they'll tell you I'm exercising I eat pretty healthy I've never been like this is my size and I know I should lose my is that someone that one would still say you still should probably try and manage that weight or if you're getting clean biometrics in every other arena would you kind of say meh for you I guess it doesn't really matter so much (laughs) there's different studies out there that actually have followed that uh-huh. and depending on which study you read, there are some that say that people who have very good numbers uh-huh. but are a little bit overweight actually live longer and healthier, have a lower mortality rate uh-huh. by maintaining that weight Interesting. than the people who with good numbers lose weight. But on the other hand, then there's other studies that say, nope, nope, you need to lose weight. So, again, I'm going to direct them to their doctor. Yeah. And whatever their doctor thinks they should do. Yeah. It almost leads me to believe that it's more about, uh, there's a lot of correlation and less clarity around causation. And what I mean by that is, it's likely the case that someone who is eating a lot of processed foods for whatever the reason may be, you know, financial constraints, time constraints, any number of reasons, and also processed food is delicious. Let's be real. <laughs> it's also tasty and, and has a long shelf life. Uh, but let's imagine, so a person who's eating those foods doesn't get a lot of physical activity in, maybe is under a lot of stress because the kind of person who doesn't have a lot of time probably is someone who doesn't have it because they're too busy spending it doing stressful things. Uh, that person is probably going to have a greater likelihood to be overweight. And also, all of those same behaviors are correlated with heart disease as well. They are much more likely to be here and see me. Gotcha. Definitely. Um, We don't want them here. Oh, you don't want us hanging out? (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to see us? I would rather see those people out in the community, yes, than to be in here. Yeah. I know as a health educator, that's something I'll say too. It's like I'm really trying hard to work myself out of a job. So am I. <laughs> always. <laughs> we'll always. There. But unfortunately, that's not going to happen. Fair enough. Um, and as far as the processed foods, I can't stand them. Right. But that's because I eat the heart-healthy foods, and I've done it for long enough that the processed foods just don't taste good to me. Mm-hmm. They don't stick to my ribs and last. Yep. Um, so once my patients that I've taught and they start following that, it doesn't take very long before they don't like that processed food. They don't like the restaurant food. Mm-hmm. And I never tell them to give it all up completely. Right. That's being unrealistic. Sure. But I ask them to give it some time to get used to eating the low salt, the good veggies, the good fruits, lean meat. Eat it for at least a couple, three months. Yep. And then try some of that other stuff. Yes. You're not going to like it. It's so interesting because, you know, as someone who, again, in, in the, the realm of wellness coaching or health coaching, and I, I went deep into the 
the ethers of nutrition at some point in my master's program. And I remember there was a point where I was working with someone and he was highly motivated. I'm usually the person who says, let's just do one thing at a time. Like nice, easy, smart goal, that sort of thing. But this gentleman was ready. He was terrified. He'd just gotten a pretty scary diagnosis and he said, nope, we're doing this. Let's go full throttle. So I said, okay, you're the boss. You know, that's fine. So he makes all these changes to his diet and his doctor's thrilled because over the course of however many months it was, uh, his markers were reflecting his efforts. Mm -hmm. So he thought to himself, I have been so darn good. I have been a master, like Jedi ninja of self-care. I think I'm going to gift myself with a trip to, I think it was a Chinese food place, but not true Chinese. We're talking Americanized version. Right. We're talking Panda Express or some such. Yeah. Not to knock them either, but. And he sat down to get his most um, sort of luscious, decadent. That's the word. He thought, I'm going to order my favorite decadent yum yum, whatever the yum yum was. And sat down to eat it. And he was so sad because he said, (laughs) I don't like it. I had this whole bowl of food and I don't even, because his palate had changed. Mm -hmm. And so many people don't realize that's what's going to happen is they'll change their diet. And even when they want to treat themselves, I'm putting that in quotes right now. Uh, they realize, oh, this isn't even a treat anymore. I can taste yeah. the chemicals. It, yep. Oh, Shazbot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of that, or part of it anyway, is that your taste buds regenerate about every 30 days or so. Ah. And so they, they're they used to all that salt and artificial flavoring and everything. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden you stop it and you're like, oh, this tastes horrible. Cardiac diet means anything that tastes good you can't have. Uh-huh. But then after a while, your taste buds have regenerated and now they're used to this new norm. And all of a sudden those foods start tasting good. Uh-huh. And this other food that you were so upset about giving up, you do not like it at all anymore. Yep. I had a patient, um, I always called him my poster child, and he told (laughs) me I could talk about him. I just never give his name out. But he came in, brand new diagnosis of heart failure with an EF of 15%. Uh That's really low and... It can be very scary. While talking to him, I realized that things he was telling me, he also had sleep apnea. Ah. And so we got him ready to go in. He had some rhythms, too, that um, we didn't really like him having. Uh A little atrial fibrillation and what we call PVCs meaning that um, it's premature ventricular rhythm uh, contractions. So the bottom chambers of the heart, the ventricle, Uh were contracting too soon Mm -hmm. for the regular rhythm. So anyway, we, um, he discharged on a Wednesday or Tuesday. He discharged on a Tuesday and Wednesday, we got the sleep center here to call him and talk to him. 
on Thursday, he came in overnight for a sleep study. Normally with a sleep study, they let you sleep for about four hours. Uh-huh. And then if you're having sleep apnea, they wake you and start treating you after that. They only let him sleep one hour. Wow. Because his sleep apnea was so bad. And started treating him right away. When they started treating him, his AFib slowed down. His PVCs decreased dramatically. Wow. And the next morning, he got up. He felt more refreshed, went home. And that afternoon, he went to um, the company that's his supply company for his uh, sleep apnea stuff, the CPAP and all that, and started being treated immediately. That's been over three years. He's never been back in, and we he used to email me. Um, but he, in about, like, I think 10 months or so, mm-hmm. his EF went up to 35, 40, around there. So the heart can recover. If you do what you're supposed to do. God, and that's, you hear things, uh, you know, like sleep is for the weak. And all of the research coming out, particularly on sleep, mm-hmm. in all the myriad of ways. I mean, yes, there's vitamin D, which has gotten a lot of celebration recently. And then there's vitamin S. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Because it's just, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything that getting good sleep doesn't help. Right. Um, when you don't get enough sleep, it has a chemical reaction in your body, in your heart. It raises your blood pressure. It can cause you to be at higher risk of developing obesity and diabetes. It can put you at a high risk for a stroke. It can cause heart failure. And so if if you're diagnosed with sleep apnea, you have to treat it. And there are different masks. Some people just can't handle the regular mask, Uh but there are other options. Um, My brother's one that he's so claustrophobic, he can't handle a mask. Uh And it was about six months ago. Now he's down in Dallas area, Texas. Uh And the doctor put an implant in him. To help with his sleep apnea. I hadn't heard of it. Whoa. But I it's haven't an, heard of this either. Yeah, it's brand new as far as I'm concerned. But it's an implant that goes on the right side. And it goes up to the muscles that, uh, at the base of the tongue and the soft palate in the back of the throat. Uh-huh. And it gives a little, almost like a TENS unit. So it gives a little shock to them. Uh-huh. And keeps them open. Yeah, and he's getting so much more sleep now. He's diabetic, he's overweight, so I'm hoping that this is going to, in the long run, help with some of that as well. Well, I can just imagine, because if you're not getting enough sleep, then your cortisol levels will be higher, which then, of course, puts you in a place where you tend to be more hungry. So Mm -hmm. you eat more food, which means you need more insulin, which means you get less insulin sensitive, and so a down and a down and down we go. So I can't imagine a world where that doesn't make an impact on all those scores because yeah. suddenly he's not starting off the day with a higher cortisol level, not as hungry, mm-hmm. poor little 
pancreas doesn't need to produce as much <laughs> insulin. Everybody's celebrating. Going, yeah, oh, absolutely, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's amazing how everything just works together like that, and you improve one thing, and it's going to have an effect on a lot of other aspects of your health. Absolutely. Well, in this area in particular, so when in thinking about all of this, what would you say you like best about working in this area? Because you've said that you've, you fell in love with the heart and these are the mm-hmm. conversations you're having all the time. Uh, what do you like best about it? Um, I love the teaching. Uh, um, I was, before COVID hit, I was getting ready to start um, a class where people in the community could come in and learn how uh-huh. to take care of themselves with, with heart failure, heart disease. But unfortunately, COVID put a stop to that. Yeah. Um, but I love the teaching. I love it when I have a patient or the family member that all of a sudden they get that aha moment. Yes. And they get it. And all of a sudden, instead of tears, I have smiles. Yes, or that look of relief. Yes. Oh, I get it now. Like that just, I thought this was going to be an overwhelming beast that I was never going to be able to slay. And now it's something accessible to me. I can do something about this. And so many times, you know, when they are told they have heart failure, let's, let's be honest, the doctors don't have time to sit down and really go in depth and explain what's happening. Right. They don't have that kind of time. Mm-hmm. And that's where I come in. Mm-hmm. I can sit down and I will take whatever amount of time it takes. Uh-huh. Uh, I think the longest I spent was three hours and 50 minutes. Mm. But that's not normal. <laughs> <laughs> but it speaks to your passion about it. Yeah, I'll answer as many questions as I can. If I don't know the answer, I'll do my best to find the answer and come back to you with it. Yeah. I always give my card out so they can ask me questions when they get home. They can call me or email me. Uh I would rather have all the calls and emails and know that they are doing the best they can for their health. Yeah. And I don't want to see them back. Yeah. Not here. If I run into him at the store or something, yeah, I'll say hi. (laughs) I really don't want to see him come back here. Yeah, I can understand that completely. Neither do I. A lot of people don't realize that there's some really scary stats out about heart failure. Yeah. The biggest one that the CDC states is that every person that is newly diagnosed with heart failure... 50% of them are dead within five years. Wow. That's really scary. It is. And we have about 900,000 new diagnoses nationwide every year. Every year. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's really scary. Yeah. That makes sense then why someone who hears that heart failure feels like it would be a death sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So in that end, then, it's imagine that this person is parked in front of you and their capacity is low. Like, you can see the glaze on their eyeballs. It, you know, like, man, I, at best, I'm going to be able to give them two 
behaviors they can change or two pieces of information they can walk away <laughs> with and, and they're going to be at saturation point. What would you say would be the, the top one or maybe two behaviors? So it's like if you change these two things, it's probably going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. And then, you know, if you come back to me, we can go from there. But what would be mm-hmm. the first out of the gate thing you would say to someone pretty much all the time? Do this thing and it will probably help you. The heart healthy diet, especially the salt. Interesting. Yeah. I tell a lot of my patients, you go home, you get that salt shaker out of your cupboard and you throw it away. Okay. I threw away mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a chef that I was speaking to at one point and, and he said, you know, you know what it feels like when you're cooking and you just, it needs something. It needs something. And so many times people think it's salt. And he said, but most of the time it's acid. So lemon, lemon pepper, it needs that. Mm -hmm. And so, but we're putting salt in it. He said, salt is just going to accentuate what's already there. It's not going to give you anything additional. So I have used that since, you know, whether it's lemon pepper or lemon rind or things like that. And darn it, if he's not right every time, it's incredible. You know, anytime I think I need a little pinch of salt, um, you know, not that a pinch of salt is that problematic, but it's just neat to know if I reduce the salt, just as you said, even if at first it feels a little strange, ultimately over time I start to like it better anyway. Yeah. And, I mean, with me, um, when I'm following a recipe, uh-huh. I'll just, I at least double the spices. Yes. And that flavor takes the place of the salt. And so you don't even realize that you didn't put any salt in this. Yes. I mean, a lot of you know, and Anthony Bourdain is a gentleman who talked mm-hmm. a lot about this. You know, he'd go to these places and, you know, travel and try all these different cuisines. And more often than not, he'd say, it's not about the recipe. It's about the ingredients. If you get really good quality ingredients, it, simple is better. You know, you don't yeah. need 15 ingredients to make something taste good. You just need fresh basil. Yes. And some fresh herbs. And it's incredible what it will taste like. But we're so used to sort of mediocre spices and herbs. So yeah. naturally, of course, that's why we say, well, we'll cover it up with salt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I like to use the fresh herbs as well. And you can uh-huh. get them in most of the grocery stores um, or grow them yourself. Mm-hmm. But the fresh is definitely the better way to go. You, yeah. you get more flavor for the bang. Yes. Yeah. And more nutrients. Yeah. And if you cut out that salt, you're not going to retain all the extra fluid, which is what causes all the swelling and the fluid to build up in your lungs and your heart and everything. And guess what? You'll lose weight too. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Is there anything you can think of that I was not smart enough to ask you know how sometimes it's it's like I don't know what I don't know um <laughs> is there anything that I, I missed in our conversation today that you would really love to tell listeners probably um daily weights are really important oh interesting for heart disease especially the heart failure uh-huh so when heart failure starts to get bad to go into an exacerbation it can take a week or two for the regular signs and symptoms to show up, uh-huh. such as the increased shortness of breath and the cough, the swelling, all of that. 
but the weight. You'll notice a weight gain. So if somebody gains two to three pounds overnight or five pounds or more in a week, they're retaining fluid. Yeah. And if they're a heart failure patient, they need to let their doctor know that. They may need a little extra dose or two if they're diuretic uh-huh. to get rid of that extra fluid. And sometimes it's not because they ate extra salt, went to that Chinese restaurant. <laughs> it can be an infection. Oh, wow. It can be stress. Different things can cause the heart failure to say, hey, I don't like what's going on today. Yes. I'm going to poke you. It's interesting to me because as a, again, health educator or health coach or, you know, when people talk about even just weight management, uh, some people, uh, there's lots of different views on this idea of tracking weight. Some say, no, you should never track more than once a week. And some it's, no, you should track every day. And from there was a, a woman who I spoke with once who said, guys, it's data. As long as your relationship with it is that, it's just data, mm-hmm. it can be incredibly, the more often you weigh, the more helpful it can be so long as your relationship is that, where yep. you get on the scale and it's, huh, it went up. Well, that's interesting. And if it starts to keep going up, that, that yeah. it's giving you a lot of data. I tell the people, I said, we don't care what the number is. We care, is it going up or down and how much? Yeah, the trends. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to, yeah, you're trying to see what's, it's a really non-invasive way to get some information about Mm -hmm. the ecosystem that is the body. Yeah. And do you have folks take any kind of average at the end or is it really just looking at those trends? Just looking at those trends. Interesting. Okay. I like to tell a lot of my patients to think of them with heart failure, that they're standing on the very edge of a cliff with their toes hanging over the edge. And it just takes one little nudge to push them over. Wow. And that's what heart failure can do. And so that's why monitoring is so powerful. Very much so. Well, Donna, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us. And it's very clear that you are an educator because you explain things beautifully. And uh, thank you. We're lucky to have you. Thank you. I enjoy it. You're so welcome. It's great to love your job. Yes. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. Close and personal. Like, hey, like right up. Now that doesn't sound good. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, so because you'll see how close I am to the mic. It's yeah, about there. I can see that. Okay, so I'll go ahead and just say again, any mishmash of words. Now you really put me on the spot and I'm not sure what to say. Okay, well, that's perfect. <laughs> so, okay.